to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Heyo. And today we have two special guests. Uh, could you guys introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Barack Haravani, VP of Engineering at CarLabs. I'm Kevin Moore. I'm a full-stack engineer at CarLabs. Great. And we're glad you guys could come on and talk with us about some of the exciting stuff you've been doing and, and releasing as open source. And, and so that's, it's a great opportunity, I think, uh, to kind of highlight these different uh, projects in the community. And so why don't you go ahead and just tell us what this project is. It's called Gremlix. Is that right? It is. Um, so Gremlix is an open source driver for the uh, Gremlin Tinkerpop query language for graph databases. Um, our goal was to make it easy for uh, to make queries against the graph database from an Elixir application rather than just writing raw queries. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Yeah, that we wanted to have um, a nice library for composing queries uh, similar to uh, like Ecto or things like that and also have a language driver that's kind of similar to other uh, driver that, uh, in other languages such as Python or JavaScript or Java. Great. And, and so for our audience, those who aren't familiar with graph databases, could you just kind of give us a high level kind of intro as to what graph databases are and why, why I might care about using one? So uh, graph databases are, uh, I guess they're schema list databases with an, with an emphasis on the relationships between the objects in the database. So um, what's great about them is that you're able to create uh, relationships between uh, any of the vertices in the database and traversing them is a very cheap uh, cost versus in uh, t compared to typical like relational databases where joins can be often be expensive. Um, so typically if you're focusing, uh, what you're focusing on is the relationships between data, um, then graph databases are great for that. Some of the uh, classical solutions that are pitched for graph databases are uh, social networks, recommendation uh, uh, systems, and uh, just some security concerns also. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're also used for building ontologies for um, data sets as well. So. so the more deeply connected your data points are and the distance between them, the better solution a graph database might give you. Um, which is why we use the graph database for our chatbots. Okay, so it, you're, one of the things you're using it for is a chatbot then, because I was wondering what application uh, you guys found that this was a good fit for. So yeah, could you tell us a little bit about what kind of, uh, like what it's doing there and how it's being used as a chatbot? Sure, so um, probably talk about a little bit of, uh, about our company. So our company is called Car Labs and we build um, chatbots or digital assistants for the automotive industry. So we work mainly with uh, OE like OEMs and man like car manufacturers. So Kia, Kia Mexico, Honda, um, we're working with a few others. And so um, we're building chatbots for them. And so uh, one of the things is, is we, our first iteration of the chatbot uh, was we had these, when we went from kind of like a generic chatbot, which was our prototype to something that was more geared towards a specific OEM or client, was that we had to write um, kind of validation rules to say, you know, when a user was asking for a specific vehicle of that client, for example, you know, if you're Kia and you're asking about the Optima or the Stinger or the K900, we wanted to present them with, um, you know, not just like kind of a very generic answer, but an answer that was more geared towards uh, that uh, that model that of the car that they were asking for. So um, one of the things is we had to we were kind of baking in all these routing rules. Um, but the problem is with baking in those routing rules is that it didn't allow us to uh, obviously this wouldn't scale because these rules were uh, written in the code and they're kind of like um, you know conditional statements. So we took a look at those conditional statements and saw how we can um, kind of abstract them and see how we can store them in a way where they could be more dynamic and editable um, and we want to store them in a database and we felt that um, the schema that they provided in the rules, the kind of the routing felt natural to a graph database. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. 
They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So you're cool. using Elixir, obviously, for this, because this is an Elixir library. So one of the questions I had, I guess, is, so where does this, your solution, this, is this like something that would be on a dealer website or where would they interact with this chatbot? So we're actually on the, so not on the dealer website, but on the automotive website, the manufacturer's website itself. So uh, Kia.com, Kia, uh, Mexico's homepage, and then, uh, or on their Facebook pages. So Honda, for example, is a Facebook only chatbot, so it'd be on their Facebook page. Um, and then as well as Kia and Kia Mexico are on their Facebook pages as well too. So all of these OEMs are um, using a chatbot, each one of those are communicating with our graph database, which is on uh, AWS Neptune, which is a new uh, hosted graph database solution that AWS came out with. So we have multiple uh, clients, bots, communicating to the same graph database uh, hosted there. Okay, and the, the, that database stores what kinds of things? I mean, obviously relationships, but... So um, specifically, uh, the way that our graph is architected is that um, we have a client vertice, so that defines which client it is that we're speaking with. So whether that be Kia or Honda, and that way we know which data um, we're going to be working with for the rest of the query. So then um, we have all of their intents. So uh, by intents, we mean something like maybe the user's requesting details of a car or requesting a specific attribute, or maybe they want to schedule a test drive. So that definition flows down from there. So it's client to intent. And then we look at what we have in the user's state. So this, we might have their name. And then if let's say if we don't have their zip code, we ask them for that. So the flow of the graph defines um, this structure. So we go down and we say, okay, you are scheduling test drive. We need your uh, address. Let's ask the user for their uh, zip code. Now that we have their zip code, we need to ask the user which dealership they want to schedule the test drive from. And so all of this data is driven through the graph, and that's how we're able to make it dynamic and not hard-coded. So if we ever needed to make a new conversation path, we add it through our CMS, which populates the graph and the flow uh, trickling down and picking up the parameters as we go along. Okay, cool. So you have something like a declarative description of like what it means to schedule a test drive. And then you have some flows that say, here's how I get the data that I need to fill in the blanks. Yeah, kind of like slot filling or yeah. exactly like slot filling. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things you mentioned in there was uh, Amazon Neptune. That's a, a service I, we have a link to that in the show notes, but that's a, not a service I've actually used. And, but it is for it, for graph databases that are like, I imagine like RDS where I could have a Postgres database instance. It's an Amazon provided graph database that I can interact with. And so is that why you guys chose to use uh, the Gremlin or Tinkerpop one? Because that's the one that is behind the scenes or how does that, what's, what's that relationship like? Yeah. So um, originally when we started with this, uh, we actually started, we've been trying this process called uh, like ADRs or architecture, architecture decision records. Um, and it would be that someone proposes kind of a solution in an ADR. And um, so for example, this valid, uh, we call it our validation service, which uses the graph database. Um, and so we originally, there was an ADR with using, using, a graph database for the validation service. Um, but the graph database in that ADR was actually Neo4j at the time. Um, but before we went into production, uh, you know, we obviously did a couple of prototype, a couple of prototypes just to test this out, um, you know, to see if it was feasible. But before we went into production, we wanted to kind of check out um, all the graph databases available to us, you know, and taking into, uh, into um, consideration things like uh, costs, deployments, you know, maintenance, uh, administration, all sorts of things, right? Because, um, you know, running a prototype on your laptop is different than, uh, you know, serving production instances and things like that, and especially when clients nah. are paying LAs. Yeah, so. It's practically the same thing, right? 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, we took a look at that. And, you know, uh, Kevin actually did a lot of the research um, as for which da different databases I know we looked into. Um, you know, so there's Neo4j, there's dgraph, uh, there's OrientDB was one of them. And then, um, and then right as we were doing this research, Amazon had actually just announced uh, Neptune at, um, at uh, their pre, not this last year's reInvent, but the year before. Um, so they had uh, announced uh, Amazon Neptune, and um, it actually turned out, you know, I mean, one of the great things is that, you know, it's managed. We wouldn't have to kind of worry about it. Um, and then, you know, you have all things built in, like um, snapshots uh, and then loading, like bulk loading data. Um, and so as well as being in, you know, setting it up within BBC, subnets, different availability zones, replication, all, you know, those sorts of things that you consider when going into production, right? Um, and so it, it actually, I think, was also the cheapest alternative alternative for us as well, too. Um, so it had, you know, the fact that it was backed by Amazon, it was in AWS, we're in AWS, it's managed, and it was a cheaper alternative. So it really seemed to really like check all the check boxes for us and that is the reason why we chose gremlin because it's what's gremlin and what else sparkle and gremlin yeah. i believe are the two languages that are uh query languages that they support um you know when we first did the prototype neo4j um has they have their own uh query language called cypher um and then they also support gremlin as well too so that's interesting i didn't know there was I don't have as, as much practical experience using graph databases. It's one of those things like I've always been aware of. And it's like, yes, when I have a problem like this, I will jump for that. And I just haven't had that yet. <laughs> Not to say that I couldn't have better yeah, I've, I've existing problems with a graph database. That, that <laughs> I might just be holding on to adding one extra join too many times, right? But, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've used a graph database exactly once and it was just to examine a big data set. So not a really solid use case. Yeah. Well, hopefully with uh, Elixir and Grimlix, just spinning it up is super quick and easy. That's why we put a lot of resources into writing some documentation, writing some articles to hopefully get people up and running because like since graph databases aren't used uh, everywhere, like you might have with a traditional Postgres like or relational database, um, we wanted to try to make that barrier of entry a lot uh, smaller. So one of the things that, that was interesting there that you'd mentioned was that uh, Gremlin is a query language. And I didn't realize that that was a, like, a query language that multiple graph databases would support. So that, that was interesting. So that using the Gremlix library, I might be able to talk to various different backend databases. Is that right? Yeah, um, I believe that you know, Neptune supports it. Gremlin has a Gremlin server uh, built in. Janus Graph supports it, I think. Was dgraph also? I don't remember. If D, I don't remember what dgraph's uh, query language was, but I think one of the things of Neptune is, and I, or maybe I don't know if this is you know one of their goals, but at least to me is what it seemed like is kind of being the standard you know graph database language or query language. So um, I know that a lot of graph databases do support Gremlin. So one thing that we've been finding interesting while developing Gremlin since we are first developing uh, against our Neptune cluster because we need to support our needs uh, first, is that we have discovered uh, that Neptune has their own specific uh, implementations of Gremlin. So um, we, do, we have been trying to support uh, the Neptune variation as well as uh, the default uh, variation. So let's just say for one example is that um, the Gremlin uh, local server generates IDs that are just numerical. Whereas Neptune is a uh, UUID, like, yeah, yeah, UUID. So um, with Elixir, we needed to make sure that we handle those kind of use cases. And there's a few other things like cardinality of properties on the vertices. Um, Neptune treats a, a slightly different than uh, the base Gremlin uh, variation. So one other thing I wanted to ask about is this idea of other people might be interested in playing with the graph database and saying, hey, this might be a good solution for us. And I'm just wondering with your situation, are you exclusively all of your data is in the graph database or is it like we also have another more traditional RDS that we're using as well? Um, you know, because I think that is a valid situation where people can say, yes, I have all of my customer data and traditional art, you know, relational database over here. And then I have you know, uh, what's more about my relationships? 
uh, like those things that, that graph databases let me query faster, find uh, relationships and find connections better and, and even connection strengths and being able for recommendations, you know, I, I might be able to use both databases. Is that something you guys are already doing or what kind of advice would you give for someone who's interested in kind of maybe bringing that in? Um, yeah, actually, that's exactly what we're doing. Um, <clears throat> our applications use uh, mostly Postgres databases. There's some MySQL. Um, so, you know, our, the CMS, for example, is the application that we use to talk to um, that speaks to the graph database and actually has the API to interface with it. Um, and that application uses both a uh, Postgres database and the graph database. So um, for the content side of things, all of that stuff is stored in the Postgres database. But then, the, like we said, the validation portion and the, um, the rules stored for our validation service are in the graph database. Um, and we do, they, there is some complementing between the two of them. So what do you mean by that, for example, is when a, a user goes through our graph validation, they'll eventually get to what we call an action. And an action is a reference to the Postgres database of which content to serve up. So the graph doesn't have the actual content. So if somebody says, uh, is requesting details of the Optima, the graph doesn't say, uh, oh, the Optima is uh, this MSRP and has this information about it. What it really does is it says, okay, uh, tell the our chatbot to request the action name from our Postgres CMS. That's, that's cool, that makes sense. So I also know that you mentioned that you're, the company behind this is, uh, what was it again, Car Labs? Yeah. Right. And so this is, I don't know, would you consider, because you guys as the company has uh, officially allowed this to be open sourced, this, this library. Uh, it's like, you could argue that it's a competitive advantage, right? That you'd have this library to make it easier for you to, to work with uh, the, the Neptune service and, and graph databases, but you know, the company's chosen to support the open sourcing. I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that and what that was like, that process. Um, it seemed like almost a, <clears throat> excuse me, a no brainer for, um, it was kind of, the decision was really from our CTO. And so, um, and we're all big proponents of open source here on the engineering side. I, I imagine most engineers are, right? Um, so I think when we, I uh, chose to open source it. I think it was just something that it, it didn't really seem like a question. You know, I mean, there is, I, I guess you could say that, you know, it did give us a competitive advantage, but um, by open sourcing it, we also um, gained a lot of things as well too. So um, one, it just made uh, kind of the project, you know, really fun to work on and interesting, you know, for all the engineers here, um, everyone feels like a very sense of ownership and pride. Um, it's actually, uh, gotten us to uh, teams to think about other things that they can open source as well too. Um, and the company is, you know, very okay with it. I mean, we're not, you know, open sourcing our entire application. So I think that's okay. Um, and so they, they didn't feel that it was uh, something that was kind of giving away too much. And um, we also gained a lot from it by, you know, open sourcing it. We, you know, this is really exciting for us to be here. Um, like I said, our team felt a sense of ownership. We actually were, um, our application was forked and new features were added to um, the driver. So, sorry, not application, but uh, Gremlix was already forked and new features were added to the driver and uh, merged back in upstream. And so there's support for a lot of complex things like nested queries now. Um, people just, there was some function, you know, we implemented the functionality that we needed immediately and we were gonna, you know, over time keep adding more functionality. So people um, started already uh, implementing that and opening PRs and stuff. So um, it was really exciting. I mean, we even have members of our team that have contributed to um, the Ecto repository as well too. Um, and so, you know, we're, you know, we use open source technologies. We try to support, um, you know, we want to try to give back to the community as well too. So um, this was one way and it was just really fun and exciting. So, um, and I, I don't think the company felt that we were hurt by it by any means. So, yeah. I feel like the other reason why it's uh, easy for us to agree to open source Gremlix is because it was, it's, it's a tool. It's a general tool. It's not a specific feature of what our chatbots are able to do. Um, Cause once we, the reason why we built, built Gremlix is because we knew it was going to be a challenge to 
generate all these queries that we need to make. It's a very uh, specific algorithm to go through the graph uh, from beginning to end and to loop back through it. Um, so we needed the tooling to accomplish that. So when somebody gets their hand on, hands on Grimlix, it's just a way for them to come up with their own solutions. It's, it's very far-fetched that the solution that we came up with would be close to another solution because there's so many possible ways to create chatbots using graph databases. Our variation is just one that we decided based on our needs and our use cases. That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you guys uh, open sourced it and that you found benefit also in seeing a benefit to the company for having open sourced it. I think that's great. I'm also a big fan of open source. Um, yeah, like I, I use an open source programming language called Elixir. And I use, like my, my laptop runs Linux. And yeah, so I love it. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. I was just curious also, um, were there any special considerations? Like if, if someone is at working at a company and they would like to, they have some like small, I don't know, libraries or tooling that they think, you know, this would be great as an open source thing. I mean, it sounds awesome that your CTO uh, was the, the first one who's a proponent or supporter of it. Um, but if someone was like, what kind of licensing did you choose? Like for the, the license for the library, is it like MIT or what, what kind of considerations would a company have? Do you, any thoughts on that? Uh, for us, the MIT license was uh, like the obvious choice. I don't think we had any discussion around it otherwise because it was always meant from the beginning to just be shared across the board. Um, we didn't really want to license it directly to us. We know that that would bring down the usage and, you know, when, I was uh, pitching the whole idea of like open sourcing as much as possible here. One of my biggest reasons was that we take advantage of a lot of open source projects, obviously, like you said, Elixir, but we, I mean, I think everybody really, you just look at your uh, dependencies, whether it be on <laughs> Elixir or on like Node, and that gets heavy really quick because you're taking advantage of all these open source solutions. So uh, yeah, just MIT was just a very obvious choice for us personally. I think also too is that you know we had to audit our dependencies as well too um, to make sure that they were also using valid licenses. So we, you know, we, I think we already went through that pain, you know, where we saw like, you know, we got lucky where I think there was only like a very few amount of dependencies that we had across all of our applications that weren't, you know, with um, that had you know pretty uh, liberal licensing. So I think we didn't want to, you know inflict that same pain on people where they had to, you know, choose a, they had to, you know, fight with the licensing of, um, you know, of a dependency, you know, we really want to be more useful and kind of be out there. So. Yeah. I think that if, uh, you know, one of the concerns is how do I get my company to agree to and accept uh, open sourcing products because of concerns like um, competitive advantage is that, um, more likely what's going to end up happening is that you end up getting like, not to sound selfish, but free work, you know, like Barack mentioned, once we uh, open source this uh, project, it was actually in insanely quick where another company came in and added support for nested queries because before they came in, all we had was just um, any functions that Gremlin supported as it, pipe through the next one, but we didn't have an, a concept of a function that takes in additional functions. So for example, in Gremlin, you could repeat over a query. So you say like repeat out of this vertex five times until you find somebody with the name Barack. Um, 
and we didn't support that. So once we open sourced it, once we wrote an article on it, got, got the name out a little bit, then at that point, somebody issued a PR and now we have this feature and we didn't have to do too much. We're startups. So we have a ton of work to do. So we can't always be dedicating a ton of work. So, you know, getting your company to understand, Hey, we're, we get free work. We get free recognition because I mean, I'm not saying that it's because of this, but our CTO ended up presenting at the AWS con uh, conference uh, the other week. And, uh, AWS has shown interest because of the article as well. It's just we're getting a lot of attention from a lot of different places, just like from you guys as well. Now our name is out there even more. There's so many benefits. I don't think anybody's worried about our loss of competitive advantage from a querying language against a graph database. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Uh, and yeah, I don't think there's, there's no business logic. There's nothing special, like no secret sauce. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely more people should open source projects for the chance to come on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think the only thing that with open sourcing was, is that you feel that you now have a responsibility to the community and, you know, it's just, you have to make sure that, you know, you, you document things and, um, you know, functions are documented. You have documentation, a website usually helps things like that. And, um, you try to be respectful of versioning, you know, semantic versioning. So, you know, you don't, break people's applications and production. But, it, but yeah. it makes you better for yourself as well. That's, the, <laughs> yeah. that's actually the thing I like the most about it is like, I know other people are depending on this, so I have to care about them as much as I should have been caring about future me anyway. For sure. I, and definitely, I mean, one of the things too is that, you know, it wasn't just kind of like an overnight thing. We just didn't decide to, you know, flip the switch on the repository to make it, you know, public versus private. But, you know, we did have to, we did, you know, create tickets and prioritize them, put them in our sprints and, um, you know, and you they're simpler tickets and a little bit on the lower priority of things. But, you know, we still try to pull them into the sprint because we thought they were important. And, um, you know, it's kind of like getting a buy-in from the company of just like having, you know, one to two uh, tickets per sprint, you know, just, you know, adding some documentation, making it more open sourceable, things like that until we felt ready. And, you know, then we were able to kind of make it open source. So that is awesome. So I, I really appreciate because it, it like, like you're saying, you're describing some of these things and you get a lot of these benefits. And I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if you have people who enjoy or were maybe persuaded to come work at the company because they see these things that you're doing that, Oh, this is, there is like some sense of ownership and some contri contribution to something like that. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of talk us through some of the other features that Gremlix has. So you mentioned it, that it has like this composable queries. Uh, like what are some of the other features that someone would be able to, to look forward to using in this? Um, yeah, so I guess one of the, as you said, the big features is like composable queries. And so what's nice about that is, um, it's probably my favorite part is just that the way uh, you write queries um, is really nice. And, you know, it, we really took advantage of the pipe operator and of building a data structure for that um, kind of gets passed between all the functions for composing a query. So what's nice is that you can just... Um, you were able to create different parts of the query and reuse them. Um, but it also leads your code looks really nice and easy to decipher when reading. Um, it's like very, very similar to uh, writing the Gremlix query where instead of, um, you know, using the dot operator, you'd use the pipe operator. Um, so that's really nice. And also made it um, actually really easy to test because of the fact that it was uh, every function just basically returns a new data structure. So we're able to unit test really nicely. Um, we also have the ability. So as uh, Kevin said that um, we did add the support for excuse me, nested queries. Um, we're using uh, connection pooling underneath. Um, and so what's nice is with supervisors and connection pooling is that if you lose connection to the database, it'll automatically restart. So um, kind of the things that you expect in from a kind of a production database driver. So, um, uh, and then I'm wondering if the, uh, you know, the support for dropping down to raw queries in the case that you need um, them as well too. Um, and then we try to kind of be nice about uh, returning a nice uh, data structure. So a vertex or edge data structure, which you can use, um, you know, in your applications. Uh, so those are kind of the big things, I guess, that features of, Grem of Gremlix. Um, this isn't really a feature of Gremlix, but I do want to call it out just for any future users is that one thing that we were able to take advantage of within our application is ecto change sets. So we did define some ecto change sets to, uh, limit what kind of properties could be set on a vertex or on an edge. 
Um, but looking to the future, I was kind of thinking, which we haven't like agreed to anything yet, but one of the features that I wanted to potentially do first class in Grimlex is to uh, be able to define um, past a vertex properties or edges. So let's say for example, for our use cases that we do have very strict rules of which uh, edges can come in and go out of a vertex. So I kind of wanted to define like an equivalent chain set to describe the rules of, you know, we could only have one edge coming out of this node um, or we could only have up to five ver uh, edges coming into this vertex. Um, so I kind of wanted to experiment with having first class support to easily define these to make it a little bit more structured and protect us from ourselves while developing. I am impressed that you made change set support. That is awesome. Because I love change sets. They're incredible. Yeah. You know, having come from like uh, Ruby and Rails, you know, where you have, um, you know, the model manages the state of like, oh, I have a modified this, you know, customer name has been modified and now I have an error on it. And it's like, I just love the, the, the way change sets solve that elegantly. So I'm really impressed that you even had the, the thought to say, yeah, let's, let's do that. And so great. Um, so if somebody wanted to like just get started and pull in Gremlix and do something with it, is, uh, is there a, is there a good like getting started blog post or tutorial? Yeah, the uh, Gremlix introducing Gremlix medium post that um, I believe is how you guys discovered Gremlix. Um, that actually has a pretty good introduction of what it is, um, how it works in the back end, and then more importantly for what you just mentioned is uh, a very quick, like this is how we use it where uh, we showed you like how to write a function that generates a vertex, how, a function that generates an edge, a function that creates a relationship between them, and then a comp composition from creating a vertex, passing it through to creating a relationship between the two nodes. Um, so, I feel like that's a good place to start also. And, and if I'm doing, if I'm getting started developing and I'm, I'm not talking to Neptune immediately, what should I, what, what would you recommend I run locally uh, to, to run Grimlex against? So uh, if you look on the um, Tinkerpop uh, website, Apache's website, they actually uh, have a Gremlin server that you can download. Um, and it's just, okay. yeah, and it, it just has like a binary and you could just start up a local Gremlin or graph database that you can use and Gremlex just connects right to that. I think the defaults actually connect directly to that. So on port 8182. And so um, that's actually what we use for development locally. So we don't have to connect to Neptune for, um, you know, development. Yep. There's a couple of links called out to those uh, references in the blog post as well. We don't document exactly how to configure those, but we link to it and it's pretty simple. And I was curious about what the, the testing story is. I know like, um, like, you know, with normal Ecto kind of thing, like I have transactions and after a test is run, it rolls it back. Is there any like test support for Tinkerpop and Gremlix, like how I might run automated tests? So for Gremlix, what we do is we actually use um, Docker containers. Uh, and so we essentially spin up a Docker container with the Gremlin server and we'll run tests against there. And then when the tests are done, it destroys the containers. So that way, but yeah, we don't have support for um, anything like kind of like a transaction where it would run in a transaction and then revert it back. Transactions work a little bit differently in a graph database. So um, sure. yeah. So yeah, and that yeah, that's the thing. so that's how we kind of handle um, any kind of like integration tests. Is we'll usually run them in a, in uh, Docker containers. And when it comes to local development, sometimes what we find is that we don't want to have the tests uh, run against our local database just in case if we want to preserve any of that data. So um, what we suggest to our developers is that they create a separate test configuration and the uh, local Gremlin server will be separated from your development one. So we usually switch over that test configuration locally, run the test there on a clean environment, and uh, then switch it back when we go back to normal development. That's what we do locally at least. Okay. Great. I, I remembered something I was going to ask, which was, um, I don't know if, if people take a time to like dig into Ecto where you can see the Ecto query is a struct and, and you were kind of describing that you just developed a struct that represents this 
uh, gremlin query that can be passed down, kind of piped through. Um, I was just wondering, did you get take much uh, inspiration from Ecto query and the Ecto library itself? Well, we knew that we wanted to store the query in a data structure. Um, and so uh, Q actually seemed to be uh, the best data structure for us because of the fact that uh, we, uh, it, that we kept kind of needing to room those, uh, you know, first in, first out type thing. Um, and so it was the way that we were building the query. So we actually are using Erlang queues for storing uh, the, the, the data structure for, as the data structure for the query. So if you look actually at the, um, if you actually look at the functions in, uh, in Gremlix, one of the things that was really nice was, is that using this queue, um, you know, if you wanted to add new, new functions or new, uh, you know, language functions, it's essentially was just in queuing, um, you know, uh, the name of that function, the name of the Gremlin function and its arguments onto, into the queue. So, um, yeah, it was actually really simple. It's just basically storing it as a, I think as a tuple, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's cool. I was curious what your experience has been with Elixir and with this company. Like, how did you choose Elixir and say, yes, that's a good fit for what we're trying to do? Um, so I started learning Elixir uh, back in 2015. I think it was around like 1.4, 1 1.3 or 1.4. It just been released or maybe 1.2. So, um, but uh, I was actually working at uh, admins and I was working at, uh, I was on, under the operations team and um, I was, you know, on call was kind of very stressful and I was just, you know, if there was a way to have, you know, 99, like, you know, uh, applications with great uptime, you know, and so, uh, and just building scalable applications with, uh, you know, a, a long uptime period. And so we, I, I started, you know, looking and, you know, obviously Erlang comes up and then I you know, found out about Elixir and um, I just was really impressed by just, it, it was also functional programming and I was, you know, really big into functional programming, still I'm really big into functional programming. Um, and so I just started learning Elixir uh, and just started messing around with it as, um, you know, on side projects and things like that. And then when I came to Car Labs, um, we actually wanted to write a uh, a C we knew we needed to write a CMS and I was kind of working on it at home on a side project and um, you know I just for fun I was writing it in Elixir and uh, before we introduced it into the company you know I'm you know cleared it with the CTO to make sure it was okay um, and you know we looked at obviously the pros and cons of it and so um, you know one of the things is to me is that you know, there is no silver bullet, but one of the great things about Elixir, right, is that, um, you know, if you're writing a web application, especially, you know, now 2018, 2019, right, Elixir seems to have everything that you're going to need, you know, right out of the box, you know, and so um, the idea of, you know, having long running processes, you know, being able to use that for caching or for side jobs, um, so you don't need to use external things like, uh, you know, queues for being, uh, for different things, um, being able to, uh, you know, as being able to communicate, for example, for stateful requests, like even for caching, like when you want to clear. So being able to broadcast that out to multiple nodes, um, you know, just long uptime, the, the fact that, you know, requests, one, a single request doesn't kill your application, all those sorts of, you know, so you don't need to rely on external things like, um, uh, like PM2 or, you know, something like that to make sure that your application stays alive when it dies, things like that, because requests are isolated. So all those sorts of things, um, you know, we, we really love the pros of that. Um, but obviously it's the fact that it's not as well known as, you know, you know, Python or Node or, you know, even PHP, I guess, or things like that. And so, um, you know, we did have to look into that, but, you know, we said that, uh, when we were hiring, we are kind of, rather than, you know, hiring for a specific language or things like that, we just were looking for people who, um, with the ability to learn and, uh, or who wanted to learn and especially learn new languages and kind of, um, so, and it didn't seem to be that hard of a language to kind of have people come in and pick up and things like that. So, um, and there's a ton of resources for learning Elixir. Um, you know, I started with the, the programming Elixir, the Prague Prague book. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, had that period shared it around and so people were learning from that and um so yeah so it wasn't too bad as far as uh, introducing elixir into the company so nice so are there any other resources you would recommend that that you either use as uh when you're helping with onboarding that you're helping to teach people 
like are, you recommended the uh, Programming Elixir book from Dave Thomas. I got that in the show notes. Is there anything else that you say, yes, this is a good resource or we officially provide this resource or anything like that that you would recommend? Um, there's, I think I just have like a couple of blog posts, like bookmarked sometimes. And so sometimes when people run across things and I'll try to remember if there's a blog post, um, I really like the platform tech blog. I, um, I think one of the other things too, is like when you're, you know, debugging things or trying to do remote IEX sessions and stuff. So they have a great blog post on that. Um, I'll try to find it and send it over, but yeah, that's like, that's one of my favorite ones. I know that I think um, Yuri also from Platforma Tech just released a blog post on um, writing a custom MySQL driver, which is, I mean, that's a really great series. So, um, you know, that set of you know, their blog posts. Um, and then I think also read, uh, the, little OTP book was also another good one for kind of um, kind of driving in those OTP principles as well. Uh, and then uh, was there another book about macros? I think I believe I've also bought, it's been a while since I read. So those are, um, try, try not to use uh, too many macros, but you know, just always good to have in your back pocket. So. And to be honest here, when uh, we hire new people, and I'm speaking from personal experience, when it comes to Elixir, just we throw them into the code base. And, you know, Elixir is, uh, you know, good enough that we could typically pick it up. And then like some of the shortcomings that you need to learn about, uh, like pattern matching, if you aren't familiar with those, are usually picked up in code review. So just Elixir is that easy, in my opinion. Yeah, I think we also make pretty good use of pair programming as well, too. So sometimes, if, you know, if anyone's stuck, um, you know, we all always love to just kind of like, you know, scoot on by with our chairs or, you know, hop on a Slack screen call and stuff and just try to, you know, help out each other. So, yeah, I think, yeah, probably just, you know, I guess each other being the best resources as well, too. So Yeah, so it sounds like pair programming is a, a large component. And also, it sounds like you may have some remote op, remote workers. And so you're doing... Uh, pair slack and you're also doing um code review i think that was a a great i think it's a great way to learn it is i agree that's really where i learned most of my biases from coming from different languages you know i was throwing in way too many conditional statements into a single function and somebody was like no just use guards okay cool <laughs> i also think um Oh, now I lost my train of thought. Uh, sorry, apologies. There was one more thing I thought about, but then I, now it just slipped me. So I'll try to, if I remember, bring it up. Oh, sorry. Now I remember. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, static analysis tools as well, too, are actually really helpful as well. So, um, you know, uh, there's, I think, Credo, for example, which has some best practices and will let you know when, you know, you're your case statements are too nested or, you know, and you may need to break it out into like kind of like a with statement or multiple functions or things like that. So do you, do you take advantage of dialyzer? Um, we do, we do, um, to, uh, add the type specs to our functions, but we're currently not using dialyzer. Um, we're, we're using uh, credo with the format and, um, we actually just started integrating. So below as well too. Um, yeah. So for security static analysis as well too. Um, I do know that, you know, people have in, in their IDEs that they have um, the type spec support. So there's also that, so that we do gain that by using um, the, by adding type specs. Yeah. Personally, when I come for local development, at least early on, I was, I use VS Code as my uh, environment and I use a VS Code plugin called Elixir LS. And uh, that, tells you a lot about like what you might be doing wrong. Um, it is a little noisy, but it does teach you a lot about where, what kind of mistakes you might be making. I do just want to give a plus one to the, the library you mentioned, Sobolo. Um, like I've worked in a, uh, I, I, like the last two companies uh, deal with compliance. And part of the compliance requirement is you have to say, Yes, we are uh, on every commit or with regular frequency, we are doing uh, security analysis of our code and you know, automated security analysis. And uh, just having that library exist uh, allows Elixir to be an option in, for different environments. So I just wanna give a plus one to that, I love it. Um, just, just 
if, if nothing else, I have actually, it has actually found issues for me and be able to resolve stuff for other people's code. You know, like it's great to find things, but if nothing else, it helps check that box. And yes, I can use Elixir now on this project. Yeah, yeah no, it's definitely a great library. All right. Well, is there anything else that you guys would like to talk about or highlight? Um, uh, I was going to say maybe one more thing about using Elixir in um, our company is one of the things is we wrote a test suite for um, with using Elixir. Uh, it, it, I, when we were talking about macros, it just kind of reminded me. So um, one of the cool things is that we built, uh, you know, for our QA team is um, a set of macros for us to be able to run integration tests against the bot and for them to kind of come up with uh, easy uh, conversations. Um, and so by using macros, it does something where, it, you know, it creates a new user, um, creates a request for a new user. And then um, we created like really simple functions uh, that you could use in the macro kind of like just like message or, you know, click button or click quick reply button. Those, you know, the simple um, things that you could do so we can emulate a full um, integration uh, test suite, you know, with that and allowed our QA team to write, you know, tests really easily um, for kind of testing different workflows and paths throughout the bot. Um, and uh, it was, that's another way to introduce Elixir into a company. So um, just, you know, the ability to do that. Um, and then maybe one more shout out for uh, macros was just uh, like, we built a, you know, an, an SDK, I built a, a while ago, an internal SDK uh, for one of our applications and, you know, macros actually made it really easy to kind of uh, model the, exposable functions and stuff because they're all very similar. So um, rather than having to write a ton of functions, macros were able to generate them out for me. So, um, but those are, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, test suites may be a great way for um, introducing uh, Elixir into a company, so. Was well, there anything else that we want to talk about before we go to picks? I don't think so, I'm good. All right, let's go to picks. Josh, do you have one for us? I have a pick. Uh, so I recently added just a little Elm thing to, uh, well, so I guess uh, two picks. So one is uh, the Torch admin generator for, from Infinite Red for uh, Phoenix apps. So it's just a typical admin CRUD generator. Um, it works rather nicely um, just to make a, a quickie admin. And it's easy enough to, to wire into, like we have a separate data layer, so it's easy enough to, to tweak the generated code. And then it actually produces the generated templates for you if you want to run your generator so you can change it to generate something more uh, appropriate for your actual use case, which is really cool. And uh, inside of it, we're embedding this LMAP for uh, some support chat stuff. And so I, I wanted to share this article on getting started with Elm 0.19 and Phoenix 1.4. It's just a really solid hey, if you want to combine these two things, here's the easiest way to do it using kind of the built-in Webpack stuff in Phoenix 1.4. And it's, it's super easy, probably easier if you uh, didn't generate without Webpack initially like I do. But uh, anyway, it's a, it's a really good article, very, very actionable if that's your cup of tea. And it very much is mine. Great. Uh, the one I was going to pick today is, so I run a Plex media server at home for family movies and, and uh, a lot of like the, the videos that I rip of our DVDs and, and Blu-ray. And so I just wanted to pick the, the tool I use for ripping Blu-ray is make MKV. And that's at makemkv.com. It is commercial software. You pay for a license, but I have used that frequently for um, backing up DVDs that I have. And one, because I, yeah, I hate pulling out a DVD and having to flip through, get through the menus to watch a movie. It's like, no, I just want to be on my, you know, ready to go on my media server. And, you know, that's also the way it's like, I'm not going to open up a CD to look at like that Pixar short that I wanted to show somebody like show, put, show the kids and I'm not going to do that. And, but within it's just easy on, on a media server. I, I love doing that. So make MKV for uh, ripping Blu-rays that I legally own. So that's my pick. <laughs> All right, Kevin and Barack, I'd love to hear what you guys have. Okay. Um, so uh, I've been doing Advent. So I, this is my first time doing Advent of Code. I know I started a little bit late. I actually started after the 25th, but um, better late than never. 
Uh, and one of my things was I wanted to do it in Haskell. So as so I guess one would be advent of code and then um, part of learning or doing it in Haskell would be the Haskell book or Haskell from first principles and it's at haskellbook.com. Um, and then there's learn you a Haskell for the greater good also at learnyouahaskell.com. So um, I've been using those two books for trying to write um, uh, Haskell development or for writing the solutions to advent of code in Haskell. So um, yeah, it's great. The, those, it's hard. Those problems are challenging, and writing them in Haskell is even harder. But it's for a fun challenge, and so um, there's a lot of things to learn from type safety and Haskell. So yeah, cool, Kevin. Um, so I've been slowly getting through a book called Category Theory for Programmers. Um, I'm not going to butcher the author's name, um, but I'll give a link to that to you guys. Um, but there is an unofficial book that is based off of his blog post. And he also has some YouTube videos of him teaching a course. It's, uh, it's great to read because it kind of puts you in a, understand a mathematical way of composability. So it's great. I mean, it's great for any kind of uh, programming uh, paradigm, but functional programming, especially it's actually been really cool for that. Um, and I'm also reading another book currently called Nudge, and that's not really about programming, but about how um, small nudges can make a large impact in people's uh, uh, lives, whether it's by influence or so forth. It's a very powerful thing. It's great for uh, coming up with ideas for design decisions and so forth. Um, yeah. Great. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you today. Uh, if people would like to follow me follow you online or connect with you, where should they go to do that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have too much of a social presence. I guess I have a Twitter that I don't use. Um, I just had, and then my blog is actually down and I'm trying to work on getting it back up. So <laughs> having some domain issues. So, um, but I guess just Barakyo, B-A-R-A-K-Y-O on GitHub, um, I guess would probably be the best place for me. Uh, yeah, kind of the same story, but uh, the, my medium profile if you if anybody wants to uh follow whether it be the car labs uh, medium uh profile or me um i'm also on the handle on github kev <laughs> uh so yeah thank you awesome great well that's it for today we hope you'll join us next week on elixir mix bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.